We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, analyzing the things you've seen and spoiling the things you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. Another new tagline? I gotta s- announce the spoilers at the beginning. I told you that before. All right. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and today marks the 40th anniversary of Can't Stop the Music on June 20th, 1980. I swear it's a coincidence that this is our 69th episode. It was written by Bronte Woodward and Alan Carr from a first draft called The Music Never Ends by Bruce Valanche, written in four weeks, directed by Nancy Walker, and released by Associated Film Distribution. I would like to see the Bruce Valanche version, please. (laughs) Sure, yes, that would be nice. To avoid confusion, I want to address it now that there's a person in this film who I will be addressing as Caitlyn Jenner with her preferred pronouns throughout. That is the appropriate way to do it, according to the style guide and to people that I checked with online. So we will be using the preferred pronouns and current name of actress Caitlyn Jenner. I guess you could call her an actress. I don't know if she's an actress, really. She's only been in a couple movies, but so. Personality. Sure, there you go. (laughs) A later working title for this film was Disco Land, Where the Music Never Ends. Nancy Walker's three-picture deal was rescinded after the critical and commercial failure of the film. Not a mistake, I would say. No, not at all. Evidently, her relationship with Valerie Perrine, who plays Samantha, got so tense that she refused to direct any of Valerie's scenes, leaving the DP Bill Butler to handle them. Which, if you'll recall, is most of the scenes of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) The second and third planned films on her deal were an adaptation of the musical Chicago, and the Josephine Baker story starring Diana Ross. Of course, now we know that Chicago would go on to win Best Picture when it eventually got made. I guarantee you that this version of Chicago would not have done that. Oh, no, not at all. The lead role was initially offered to Olivia Newton-John, who turned it down to do Xanadu. Good Good choice. choice. (laughs) Jacqueline Bissett, Cher, and Raquel Welch were also offered the role and all turned it down. Actually, I think Raquel Welch didn't turn it down, but... Other people in the cast and crew were like, no, we're not going to work with her. What? (laughs) They didn't want to work with her because they had heard that she was difficult on set or something like that. John Wilson, the creator of the Razzies, credits a double feature of Xanadu and Can't Stop the Music for inspiring the awards ceremony in the first place. (laughs) So watching these movies is what gave him the idea of the Razzies, which started this year and which Can't Stop the Music won the Razzie for Worst Picture. Uh, It went to producer Alan Carr... And Worst Screenplay went to Carr, which he would have shared with uh, Bronte Woodard, but Woodard had passed away shortly after the film's release, meaning the first Razzie for screenwriting was awarded posthumously, which seems shitty to me. (laughs) It only won those two, but it was nominated in every category of the inaugural Razzies except for Supporting Actor. Wait, what were... Do you know what all the categories were? I don't have them all in front of me, but I think on purpose they made the category so they could give one to everyone involved with this movie. Oh, Ironically, the only village person constantly wearing a helmet was injured the worst on set, (laughs) 
when he lost his footing on the scaffolding during the I love you to death sequence and fell to the stage floor, losing his helmet in the process and injuring his head requiring 12 stitches. But the head injury doesn't account for the music because it was written before that scene. That's true. Mm. <laughs> there's really no explaining well, it. Also, there's like been like two dozen village people over the years. That's so. true. But this was one of the original guys. Okay. Half of the film's $20 million budget went to lavish parties thrown on a publicity tour as the film was being released. Um, it shows. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely I, I, noticed. It shows where that money went. Part of this went to a one-hour television special called Magic Night, Weeks before the film's release, hosted by Valerie Perrine, and it featured appearances by Gutenberg, Hugh Hefner, Cher, just a bunch of random people trying to draw up, talk about the film before it came out. As we've mentioned before, protests against the production of Cruising occasionally plagued the production of this film by mistake. The character of Jack Morrell was based on Jacques Morelli, who wrote all of the music for the village people, and also for David London and the Ritchie family, the three groups that are featured in the film's soundtrack. David London, who is credited with singing Samantha, is actually a pseudonym for Dennis Fredrickson. He was the one-time frontman of the rock band Angel, whose song 20th Century Foxes we heard earlier this year oh. on the soundtrack to Foxes. Mm-hmm. He wasn't singing on that track, but he was the frontman of that band at one point. He also provided lead vocals for Toto on one album, Isolation, and backup vocals for the band Survivor. We start the film... With Jack Morrell being called to the counter of a record store, he is wearing roller skates in the store and begging for the night off. He's been invited to audition as a DJ for a big club, and his boss is telling him that he's got to do inventory tonight. Typically, you don't surprise someone with having to do inventory. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, by the way, you're going to be here for eight hours past the end of your shift. But he says, if you're not here tonight, you're out of a job. And Jack hops on the store intercom and tells his boss, Okay, Schultze, have it your way. But the next time you take inventory in here, you'll be counting the albums of Jack Morrell. Because I am a composer, not a schlepper salesman. Oh, that's not true, because the next time he'll be doing inventory is tonight. <laughs> and unless he plans a whirlwind career, uh, there, there won't be any records in the store He's yet. just going to sneak in some of his records. <laughs> yeah, you're going to find some. I just hit him on shelves. <laughs> Mitch Hedberg style. Yeah. And then he shouts, My time is now! And he goes outside and just spins on roller skates like he just took way too much acid. He's and, like in the middle of the street. Yeah, and uh, they're doing these really weird split shots yeah. of like two shots are mirrored, but then there's one in the center. Yeah. Like that's not the same shot. Yeah, it's a three-way split screen with just mirrored side images but he's just spinning around in the middle of the lane of traffic in front of like taxis that are honking at him like what are you doing this sets up the aesthetic of this movie for me being so 70s not only do we have this sort of cheesy montage with weird split screen and mirroring happening but we also have all these roller skate skating people and it's just all around very kitschy 70s feel we started watching this on like a youtube rip of the movie we got about 30 seconds into it before i was like we have to rent this this looks like it's going to be incredible in like full hd quality (laughs) and i don't regret it at all (laughs) 
it I was, don't know. That's like four dollars. I'll never get back. It was it was one hundred percent worth the money. At one point, a construction worker pops out of the the construction worker from the village people pops out of an open manhole cover and steam is just billowing around him. Which doesn't make any sense because he's not actually a construction worker, even in the story of right. this movie. He's just an actor, <laughs> so he shouldn't have been in that hole. They get very confused about what he's supposed to be over the course of this film. <laughs> we listen to a terrible song about New York. Listen to the sound of the city. Listen to the sound of my town. New York is the city of cities. New York is the wearing the crown. And we see various shots of New York, including, including one shot San Francisco. <laughs> of three girls uh, <laughs> on skates wearing shirts that read San Francisco, despite this being New York. But that might be a reference to a song called San Francisco that was produced by, uh, written and produced by Morelli. We end up in San Francisco later, though, so maybe this was supposed to be an establishing shot for that. Who knows? They're just like, we ran out of footage for this weird montage. Quick, grab the San Francisco girls and yeah. stick them in there. But this is a song about New York. <laughs> no one will notice. Uh, we're introduced to Samantha, who is drawing a mustache on a bus ad featuring herself for something branded Kiss Me, probably makeup. Jack catches up with her in Central Park and grabs her ass to surprise her. He asks, Fattening up for the Miss Piggy lookalike contest, huh? There's a recurring joke that she's fat now because she retired from modeling. It doesn't make any sense. For a second here, Gutenberg as Jack is inexplicably talking directly to camera. And we confirm this is not just her point of view when we see Samantha again. And she's looking completely away from him and turns to ask him a question. So I don't understand why just in this one scene, just for this one shot, he's looking into camera. And it doesn't happen again for the whole rest of the movie. He explains that he is the guest DJ tonight at Saddle Tramps Disco. And uh, they head back to the apartment that they share and say hello to Felipe, who is for some reason in their apartment. He says that his TV broke, but I guess he has a key to their place, and so he can come in and just watch TV when he feels like it. All of these living arrangements in this movie are very bizarre. Yeah. Uh, this is the Native American from the village people, or just village people. I don't know if it's the village people or village people. They seem to alternate in the story, so I'm not totally clear. According to Wikipedia, Felipe Rose claims Lakota Taino descent and recently won the Best Dance Song Award at the 2018 Native American Music Awards hmm. for his solo effort, Going Back to My Roots. I, uh, I read some other stuff that he claimed different heritage at other times. Yeah, I think he had said Cherokee in an interview at one point, but it sounds like the Lakota Taino is the, is the accurate one. And it, his mother was Puerto Rican, but his father was Native American. Apparently, he also works at Saddle Tramps and is very excited that Jack will be auditioning there tonight. Samantha picks on Jack for quitting his job, and Felipe says that she's being too materialistic. And she responds, I didn't invent it. Just in it. And then Jack repeats the phrase a few times as though it weren't a terrible idea for a song. I didn't invent it. I'm just in it. I didn't invent it. I'm just in it. I didn't invent it. I'm just in it. Hey, Sam! It's pretty good. And I fully expected him to continue doing this throughout the movie where he just grabs phrases people are saying and pretends like he's writing a song about it. But he never does this again. And he also never makes a song about these words. So I just like just one moment of him actually being inspired by something that happened and then writing a song about it. I feel like that might have actually worked a little bit better because instead we're 
we keep shoehorning in these songs. We're like, let's pick a uh, half a dozen village people songs and see how we could shoehorn them into one story. I'm like, at least maybe have something happen in the story that is that inspires things instead of them just randomly picking a song and saying, let's sing that one now. It's also weird that it seems like they avoided like their biggest songs. Like the YMCA is in yeah. here, but they don't do Macho Man and they don't do... What is the other really big one? In the Navy. One? In the Navy. There you yeah. go. Those are their three like biggest songs, and they only did one of the three in this movie. Like, did they think they were going to get another two movies out of this? Well, There's a really bad edit in this scene too. Uh, in the apartment. Yeah, where Steve Gutenberg's talking, and then right. it cuts to like another angle, but closer on him. It's yeah. a total jump cut. It's very yeah. weird, and it's like mid sentence. It's not like after he's finished. It's like it's it just like happened. I was like, uh. Yeah, and he's uh, holding a bunch of stuff in one hand, and then it disappears on mm-hmm. the cut. But Samantha's walking around watering her massive collection of houseplants, as we've discussed as a but standard this. 80s custom. <laughs> and uh, she accidentally spritzes Felipe, and he suddenly does like a rain dance and does this really weird whistle sound. Yeah. This, this reoccurs many times throughout the film. Yeah. I, I, is he making this with his mouth? I don't know. I think he is, because I think he's trying to show off that he can make this sound. But it's weird. It yeah. sounds digital. It's very it's very odd. Well, I, I think that sound is recorded ADR. I, 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 I don't I, think it is. I think he's making it on set. On set? Because the, the whole audio quality, to me, changes when he does it. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that he's not making the sound. I'm just saying that I feel like... Much like when the other characters break into song, yeah, it's it goes it switches over to a recording. Yes, version very obviously versus yeah. them actually on mm-hmm. set. That's that's possible. Samantha follows Jack into her guest room where he's been staying ever since he house sat for her a while ago. Um, he tells her that Benny Murray, a famous DJ scout, is going to be there tonight. Like he's going to be sitting in the back of the club with binoculars, just watching how he DJs. Did, so, did like DJ mean something else in 1980? Because like oh, he's he's being a disc jockey when they get to the thing. I mean, some of it's like a TJ because he's pushing tapes in. Well, but. no, that's I, that's not what I mean. It just mean he's literally just playing songs. Whereas like now you have to mix them. You're, together, you're right? mixing multiple songs by other people, and he, I feel like he thinks this is his big break because he's just gonna play his own music that yes. he that he's composed. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening here for some reason. <laughs> but yeah, he thinks that Benny Murray will be very impressed by the way that Jack plays other people's music, and that he'll get hired full time to do that. This will inevitably lead to a big record deal in his head like there's no way that this won't happen now and this is yeah i have the note we get a weird jump cut here where the camera just jumps a little to the side but Mm -hmm. still like a mid shot on jack and a reel of audio tape disappears from his hand he promises to go back to dental school if tonight doesn't work out felipe steps into the room to tell samantha that this entire time he's been watching her hose just flood the carpet in the living room she gets very upset about that and turns around to to save her carpet that she spent a mint on, she says. Oh, no, not water. That'll ruin it. Yeah. It's, a, it's like it's one of those cashmere rugs. And it's <laughs> spritzing so lightly that it's like you literally just get a rag and soak it up and it would be nothing. It's like plastic fiber carpet. It's not nice carpet. Jack gets changed into his club clothes and he says, oh boy, one hot night coming up. Samantha blow dries her carpet trying to coax it back to life because it's flopped over like wet carpet is for five seconds before it's dry again dry darling dry stand up fiber oh please come on nice little rug at saddle tramps samantha arrives with her friend alicia and felipe tells them that jack will be starting soon 
Felipe introduces them to Benny Murray, and he's particularly interested in Samantha as she is a retired model, but she doesn't really care about anything that he tries to offer to her because she's out of that lifestyle. She's just here for Jack. Samantha throws her purse to Felipe and starts dancing with Blaine and a couple other guys in the crowd on the dance floor. In the crowd, we see the construction worker again, just dancing by himself, basically. She heads up to the DJ booth to meet with Jack, and on the way, Benny tries to take a picture with her because he wants pictures of him and celebrities at his clubs to, like, hang on the wall. But she just climbs a ladder up to the booth, like, ignoring him, and she, like, throws her butt in his direction as she's going up. It looks like she's trying to hit him in the face with her butt weird upstairs jack gives her the tour and he throws on a song about her called samantha and tells her to dance to it he's obviously not the singer on this track so at some point jack had enough money to pay a band and a singer to perform this song that he wrote but the character, the singer's name is David London that we that we mentioned before. It's written by Jacques Morelli, but it's clearly not Jack singing. I don't know what we accomplish in this whole club scene. Like, as much as in any other scene of this movie. Well, but I don't feel like anything actually moves the story forward in, in, in this scene at all. Yeah, because he makes it sound like this is going to be, Benny Murray's going to be watching him and seeing what he does. And it will either make or break his career. But then Benny Murray is just trying to follow Samantha around. He's not paying attention to what Jack's doing. Jack doesn't even care what Jack's doing because he puts on that song for her, the Samantha song, and she's so impressed by it that she's like, oh my God, you have to make a demo tape for me and we're going to send it off to a record company. And he's like, great. And he just puts someone else in charge of the DJ booth. And it's like, <laughs> this is your audition this, this is was what like you quit your job this over. was your big break <laughs> and your big break is happening through your roommate now instead of this guy that you've been waiting for to come all night i also think it's weird that this would be the first time she's hearing his music yeah like they recorded it in the house i assume so it's it's weird that she hasn't heard any of this especially since the song is about her she tells him that while he was failing out of college she was dating everyone in the record industry and just never thought to bring it up before now. Mama has connections! <laughs> so Lulu calls their apartment at night on behalf of Sydney, a designer desperate to drag Samantha out of retirement. She quickly hands the phone off to Sydney and accidentally hits her hand with the phone. And so Sydney starts spinning. And <laughs> she's just like, ah, stop me! <laughs> As the chair is starting to turn around. <laughs> and she straightens her out. And there's this harsh purple spotlight pointed like directly into her face while she takes the call. And she asks how fat Samantha is. And she says, oh, I've blown up like the Hindenburg. And she says, we, we need to get you in here. We're, we're going to lock in this contract with the Dairy Association. I need you for this milk commercial. It's going to be great. I, and, I think it's funny how hard they lean into Sydney pushing to get Samantha back in this industry. Like, yeah, she would like, not care. You are the most amazing model in the world. And we have to emphasize this in these scenes because otherwise you wouldn't know it. Yeah. There's no way that anyone would be fighting to get a model out of retirement, though. Because if a model's in retirement, it's like, okay, I need a younger person anyway, so it doesn't matter. Sydney gets up out of the chair, but the spotlight stays on the chair. So there's just this weird, harsh purple light on the chair. And she says that they're going to make dairy fancier than champagne. And she starts listing off notes for the Dairy Association. Like, you need a new bottle, you got to cork it, and 
it's uh it's going to be great and we're going to get samantha simpson in here that's the the ideal spokesperson for the product jack calls samantha into his studio and sings a completely improvised beat under a totally different song that's playing because he can't hear the music that's playing on this track and he asks what she thinks and she's like well your voice is shit so you need to get some singers in here because this isn't going to cut it and he says i don't know any singers but he already has a single that he's recorded with a singer so Mm -hmm. he does know a singer uh and she says that she's heading off for some baskin robbins which of course was a promotional tie-in there was a a flavor that came out at the same time as the movie called can't stop the nuts (laughs) oh god (laughs) apparently baskin robin doesn't have ben and jerry's pun writer budget (laughs) uh she immediately bumps into Felipe in a loner headdress <laughs> because he had to get his oiled, he says, which I maybe that's a thing. She tells him that Jack needs free singers, and Felipe says, well, that's dumb. Nobody works for free. And then she says, well, you work for free? And he's like, sure. <laughs> he sings a little bit, and he ends with that weird Native American whistling sound again. When I'm calling you. <laughs> she continues walking, and suddenly... It's clearly on purpose, but Felipe is basically replaced in the scene with Randy, and they're implying that as she's walking, she's bumping into different people, and they're having the same conversation all in one piece. But her ice cream keeps changing flavors, so she kept getting ice cream every time she met with a different guy. Oh, is that true? I didn't yeah. even notice that. But she, she catches up with Randy, the cowboy, and uh, he sings a bit of the leg bone is connected to the hip bone for some reason to show, like, not only can I sing... I remember songs from when I was a child. Um, <laughs> Is he supposed to be some sort of like fitness instructor or something? Because I don't remember I know if they the, go into his background. I know he's the cowboy in the band and he's wearing a cowboy hat. But I think that's just his style. She made yeah, she made up something like yeah, you know about choreography or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it was weird. yeah. Um, More like cowography. Mooiography. Uh, <laughs> hey. No, neither one of these is good. As she steps away from Randy. She asks if he has a hanky, and conveniently he does. Unfortunately, Al Pacino was frightened out of Powers Booth's hanky shop before we could learn what the red hanky means. In <laughs> but I looked it up, and it seems like the cowboy here is down to fist people. Oh, God. So that's a fun little in-joke that probably went over a lot of heads. Oh, no. Samantha leaves to visit her actor friend, who happens to be obsessed with singing on the set of a music video about a bunch of women in red murdering a construction worker i don't know what the point of this music video is but didn't we skip the guy there was a guy pulling um like a rack of clothes yeah but he doesn't end up in the band she does talk to another she's guy she's asking there. another guy to sing and then that doesn't go anywhere or maybe maybe that was the gi guy and i just didn't recognize him no because no, the, the gi, GI guy comes, comes, in, comes later. in later and is also the cop black. comes in later too <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That one didn't go anywhere. It was weird that this wasn't another member of the band if it wasn't. Yeah. But, yeah, she she does talk to a third guy here who's, like, pulling a bunch of clothes. But he doesn't seem to talk to her about singing at all. But now we move to the set of a music video where a friend of hers is – it's like he's not a famous singer, but he's playing the singer in a music video about a bunch of women in red killing a construction worker. But he's just climbing up scaffolding – and trying to get away from all these women and he's singing this really, really bad song called I Love You to Death. It's probably the worst song in the movie. Oh, 
just the chorus repeating itself over and over again. And I know that's all of the songs, but some of them do it better. Some of them are catchier than this one. I don't get this music video at all. Yeah. Um, but this is the set where he actually fell and hurt his head pretty bad while they were recording it. They get this whole video in one take, apparently, and David Hodo, the construction worker, agrees to help with recording tonight. So we locked in another one. Sydney gets out of a cab near Samantha's apartment, and while she's paying the driver, a little old woman just slaps her in the ass with a baguette, and <laughs> Sydney spins around and takes it and slaps her back with it. And that's, we don't see this character again. I don't know why this woman did this or why she was even in the film at all. It's just very, a strange choice it's for this It's not the same, same one that... No. Okay. No. It's not. I, I was like, this woman has to appear somewhere else and I missed it. And it's like, no, this crazy woman just walks up and hits her with bread and then she hits her back and that's it. That's, that's the whole joke here. Caitlyn Jenner is walking down the street carrying a box and a woman exiting a store just comments, nice box, which was prescient of her but it's a box you can't see anything in it you don't know what's in it it's just it's just entendre it's not double entendre jenner sees an old woman check her purse and get clipped by a moped but this is not the same old woman from the bread that lady is gone from the film completely jenner helps the woman up and the old woman pulls a gun on her and starts taking all of her stuff her watch her wallet she lets jenner keep the cake box though but she does like throw it up in the air probably tipping the cake over and screwing it up. Sydney goes to make a phone call in a phone booth. I don't I have no idea who she was going to call, but she panics when she gets her fingernail stuck in the dial. This scene bothered me so much. You were really squirming for this yeah, one. It just like the feeling of a long fingernail being stuck in something and not being able to move your hand. Mm-hmm. Like it just was really creeping me out and I wanted the joke to be over very quickly and it's not over for like six more hours of this day because <laughs> she's in this phone booth for like the next four scenes. I feel like maybe I don't understand how payphones used to work, but she's just shouting into this receiver like, operator, operator, my finger's stuck. Right. And it doesn't really make any sense to me because she's already dialed several numbers. So yeah, I, unless I feel you like just dialed zero, you're not ju- talking yeah, to the operator. Exactly, exactly. She's just hoping that somebody's going to be like, oh, let me help you with that, man. And what would the <laughs> operator do? Well, I'm almost wondering if is this supposed to be a joke that she has no idea how to use a phone uh, yeah how yeah maybe works. <laughs> there's not an operator there she's just shouting into the receiver that's possible she's calling for help inside but is apparently completely invisible in the booth because only we notice that she is in distress everyone at samantha's house is loading equipment into the backyard where they'll be recording lulu sydney's assistant is there and she thinks that felipe is hot <laughs> and she says that she really goes for exotic types particularly when they're half naked and then her point culminates with maybe the weirdest line in the whole film. She says, Mom, you tell him I'll make up for all the indignities they suffered in Roots. Okay. Now, I haven't seen Roots, <laughs> but, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's about, about slavery. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. I'm, not, I'm not saying that there weren't occurrences of Native Americans being enslaved. Yes. I'm sure there were. But I think the implication here is that she's mistaking this half Puerto Rican, half Native American character for an African American, despite having just called him an Indian and the fact that he's wearing a Native American headdress in the house. Okay, but also, now, I I, I asked you this question when we were watching the movie. Yes. But people knew that the village people were gay at this time. Right, but this film is trying to hide it. Are they? Yes. Yeah. 
And it's very uh, disturbing okay. and weird. It is weird. I don't I don't really get that. Like women hitting on them and it happened And they hit on women. And it happened in the club too, like when when he was dancing up on the bar, like yeah. the women were into it and he seemed I don't know. Yeah, it's I mean they most of them were out though. There was only one member of the band that was actually not gay and he quit the band before they started this movie. And they replaced him with uh, another singer who was gay so by now the entire band was gay and out about it but when they made this movie there it seems to be a very concerted effort to not portray anyone as being specifically gay seems like a weird effort it's a very strange choice for what the band stood for outside of this film yeah because all of their songs are about like gay icons and they're all dressed up as like gay fantasy characters so it's really weird that you would bother to make a movie about them and then try and hide part of who they were i think the ymca sequence speaks for itself yes no absolutely (laughs) samantha suddenly freaks out because she dropped her contact lens in the lasagna this is back when contact lenses were made out of glass basically (laughs) and uh mustard specifically is the one that she dropped she's nicknamed each of her contact lenses for the the small condiment jar she keeps them in in her fridge i'm not sure how it just fell off of her eye but, this whole uh, thing just gives me the creeps. Yeah. The idea of keeping a contact lens in a mustard jar just makes my eyes sting. Yeah. Just the thought of it. And then the idea of somebody eating a crunchy glass lens in the lasagna makes me gag. Yes. It's pretty gross. Uh, in the backyard, they have wasted time setting up strings of lights and dozens of candles for this audio recording. Uh, <laughs> Samantha suggests that Jack take a moment to teach them how any of the songs go. He walks over to them and he says, okay, and I, I don't understand this plan, but he says, I'm going to record the rehearsal and we'll overdub when we sing it again, okay? She's like, what does that mean? It's not a rehearsal if you're recording it both times. You mean you're just going to record it in two tracks? I don't understand. Back in the kitchen, Lulu asks how Samantha's ex is doing. Evidently, he is a big shot in the record producing world, just by coincidence. She says that she had to make an appointment to break up with him and he was on two phones the whole time. So he's just obsessed with his work and that's why it didn't work out samantha is currently sifting all the sauce off of the lasagna not to save the meal but to avoid wasting an expensive contact lens by feeding it to someone in the backyard felipe and lulu make eyes at each other even though a large portion of the audience must have known by now that the entire group was gay the only straight member victor willis the original cop quit the band before this movie was made because the focus of the band became their gayness instead of music that he'd hoped would appeal to everyone. He was married at the time to Claire Huxtable actress Felicia Rashad, and uh, he tried to have her written into the film as his girlfriend before quitting the group. When he was let go from the band, she was replaced with the actress playing Alicia in the film. But that part was originally written for Felicia Rashad. So from Felicia to Alicia. Exactly. Maybe that was even on purpose to be like, look, it's almost your girlfriend's name. He was particularly disappointed when In the Navy was rejected as a theme for the U.S. military because of the group's gay image and fan base. Like, Victor Willis actually really appreciated the fan base of the song and wanted that to be the official song of the Navy. And it was rejected on those grounds, basically, for any advertising purposes. Uh, Until Down Periscope in the 90s. Yes. Terrific film. Lulu senses that Jack is nervous about the record and offers him a joint. It's got to be mixed with something because when he comes back, he is messed up. 
Caitlyn Jenner knocks at the door and introduces herself as Ron White, not to be confused with Ron Tater Salad White. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, she throws the cake box to Samantha and explains that Samantha's sister sent it. Ron White is not a cake delivery person. She's a lawyer. Yeah, she's and- a, she's an attorney who, for some reason, delivered a cake on behalf of a former neighbor. Oh, is that what that scene is about? Yeah. It's- I didn't understand why she was there it's very convoluted she announces that she was robbed by a little old lady on a motorized cart a la dumb and dumber i didn't even see it coming uh apparently ron lived next door to samantha's sister in st louis and called ron to deliver a cake to samantha ron says that she just moved to new york and currently works as a tax lawyer and samantha's friend alicia jogs in joking it's a raid with Officer Ray Simpson in tow, Ray replaced the straight frontman Victor Willis shortly before the film started production. He used to sing with a group of cops called the Cop Outs, according to this film. Okay, that's not funny because that's not like a. There's not multiple there, words. Yeah, it's not a pun. She Cop says, out doesn't mean anything. She says, get it. Like, there's m- multiple things to get here, but they just use the word cop and they are cops. But there is no multiple meaning. Cop out has nothing to do with singing. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, he's cop out. Oh, because he's gay? He's out. That does make more sense. Is uh, that what Kevin Smith was joking too? I don't think that that's what that, I don't think that that's the get it part because. Oh. It should have been called cops out. I assume that she's with him like they're in a relationship. She was supposed to be the girlfriend, the character originally, but that, that doesn't seem to be the case in this version of the movie. Well, because she brings two different members of the band together she does she does because she brings the gi also (laughs) yeah my next note was clever no no (laughs) ron asks if ray is really a cop and proceeds to report the old lady who robbed her (laughs) but uh the cop knows who it is yeah he's like oh yeah we we have a bunch of reports on this woman she was on a moped right or she left on a moped apparently ray knows all about it uh when alicia tries to introduce ray Jack can barely see him because he's so high in the backyard. Jack's intoxication will surely play into the unfolding scene, right? No, that's the last bit of that joke that we get, and he's totally back to normal for the rest of the scene. Sydney's fingernail just magically comes unstuck from the phone. Thank God. I was tired of thinking about it. She never calls anyone. She doesn't, like, start dialing again more carefully. Uh, but now, for some reason, she's locked in the booth. Is the door broken? I don't Who know. Who was she even trying to call in the first place? I don't know. I assume she was going to call Samantha and say, I'm coming to your house. But or where call do you her live? From, or call her from your office to get that information. You know, it didn't make sense that she was using this phone booth here. But uh, she can't get out, and a drunk man jostles the door open for her from outside, and she escapes. Ron and Samantha join the party in the backyard. Jack's mom shows up. And she says that she can't wait for the music that he's written to be performed on Broadway. <laughs> he says, Would you do me a favor? Sure. Uh, don't tell everyone here that I'm a genius. I'm your mother. Instead of coming to the door, Sydney inexplicably climbs over a brick wall into Samantha's backyard. But while she's preparing to do that, she speaks to this cat that's on the other side of the wall for a minute. Nice kitty. You got it home. Move it, cat. You rotten pussy. And this is where I think she sounds a lot like Eartha Kitt's character in The Emperor's New Groove. But she falls over the wall and directly into Ron's arms. Someone complains about the crunchy lasagna. Maybe it's her? It's, is, is her. Sydney's the one who ate the yeah, she, she's contact the one lens? Who gets it. Jack's mom admits that she came here tonight by chance. She says that the entire band should get down on their knees for him. 
And uh, <laughs> as they gather on stage, the cop says, give us the lyrics. I might not have to use this. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you probably don't. Uh, because it's the same six words over and over again. But they just, they sing a song called Magic Night. Magic Night. Magic's in the music. It's a magic night. We all need to use it. I don't know why, but this whole movie felt sort of like an episode of Sesame Street to me. <laughs> Where they're like, what do we need to do? We got to get a group of people together yeah. to sing a song. How do we do this? I know. Let's grab some pencils and paper and yeah. we're going to write some music. And then they go into this snazzy song. Yeah. <laughs> Ron leaves in a huff because all of Samantha's friends are just too out there for her. She speaks very loudly in the backyard during the recording and nobody seems to care. Even Jack has wandered away from the production of his first demo record to just chat with people in the backyard. Suddenly, Samantha is an expert at copyright law. And Jack is ecstatic to learn this, that not only does she have all these amazing contacts in the record industry, but she knows how to copyright all of their music and she'll handle all of that. She finds him the next day on his porch in white denim overalls. And that's it, I think. I think that's all he's wearing. (laughs) She tells him that everyone wants her to buy the record deal with sex. They're basically just, oh yeah, we'll we'll sign this band if you sleep with me right now. And uh, she's had to refuse people all day. She cheered herself up with two snowballs and a ding-dong, she says. I eat two snowballs, one ding-dong, and a couple of twists. Because the joke is that she keeps eating junk food, but also that it's sexual junk food for no reason. Mm-hmm. Jack says, hey, I got a crazy idea. What about your world-famous record producer ex-boyfriend? And she says that she won't swallow her pride to talk to him, and Jack says, anybody who can swallow two snowballs and a ding-dong should have no trouble with pride. Suddenly, she's totally on board with this idea. She asks Jack why she hasn't heard the pitter-patter of stewardess pumps in the house lately, and he says that he's sworn off sex until he signs a contract. She goes to bother her ex, and Steve just waits for her. When she shows up, he's kind of shocked to see her, but he doesn't put the phones down that he's on. As he's walking around the office, he's basically destroying phones one at a time to prove that he's changed, only to answer new phones that are hidden all over his office, and he asks her to take a seat. He tries to sneakily answer the phone behind her back while he's talking to her, but he he answers it looking for Rod Stewart because he's trying to lock in some deal with him. (laughs) I don't even have to answer that. (laughs) Prove it. She gives him the tape for the band that they recorded in the backyard, and he kind of blows up at her for using him. He's like, oh, you have a tape now too? Everybody's got a tape they want to give me and it's like I, yeah you're a record producer yeah, I, was gonna say, I don't know why he's surprised <laughs> about this everybody should be pushing their music on him yeah. that's his job she gets him to commit to at least recording a demo session on her way out all of her dialogue is made up of the names of hit songs for some reason i i can't tell if the joke is supposed to be that she's like reading them off the walls but uh she's just saying the names of various songs as she's leaving after she steps out of his personal office she bumps into ron white in like the lobby She follows her out of the building. Outside, Ron apologizes and attempts to help Samantha by flagging down a cab, but Samantha uses some leg and gets three cabs instantly that all practically crash into each other. Ron tries to reheat the lasagna from the recording night in her kitchen, and Samantha crashes into her full speed and dumps the lasagna all over Ron's crotch. So they take off Ron's pants, and she has to wrap herself in this small cloth. It's like a... I don't even know what it was. Was it like a shawl or something? Yeah, something like that. It's not a full towel, but it's not as small as like a rag. Ron sits in a barber chair in the living room and just cranks the handle until it collapses. But this is a barber chair, right? 
kind of looked like a barber shop. Yeah. I don't know what else it would be, but yeah. um, it just tips back very suddenly. Or a dentist chair, perhaps. Yeah, maybe. Uh, would, that would make more sense. Would it? Would it? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because Steve Gutenberg was a... Oh, because oh, he was going to go to dental, dental school. school. There yeah. you go. Sure. I forgot that connection. But yeah, she sits in this chair. <laughs> it collapses backwards. Uh, Samantha tries to bring wine and then spills it all over Ron. While trying to wipe it up, she gets her dress caught on the chair and climbs onto Ron to avoid tearing her $1,000 dress. But she notices here that Ron is wearing a wedding ring. And she says, I draw the line at younger men, but I definitely draw the line at younger married men. And Ron explains that her divorce is coming through. Samantha slips backward out of her dress. So now she's in her underwear and starts tickling Ron's toes. Which this whole scene just bothers me so much. It's just a weird thing to do and it's just gross. Everything's super awkward here. Ron carries Samantha to her room and drops her in her bed. I like as they're walking in though. She's like, what do you think of my room? And she's like, it's uh, so orange. Peach. And then she throws her on the bed. <laughs> they wake up the next day. Ron has apparently invited Samantha and her friends to audition new band members in her family's law offices on Wall Street. I don't know why we couldn't continue to do auditions here at the house, but uh, it's a pretty ginormous apartment. Well, Samantha did say that the neighbors were really angry about the recording session they did, which oh, is okay. why they weren't going to use her place again. For but that. it also seems like the village, that this place that they live, is a pretty active place. Yeah, that's what it's for. Like, this whole area. like this is that kind of stuff is happening all the time anyway. Yeah, but we get to the law offices of the White family. People are juggling swords. One guy's eating phone cords. Other people are just playing tennis. I feel like they should have been more specific with the wording of their ad that they needed people. Jack tells the GI, Alex Briley, that he's seen him perform in the park and that he doesn't have to audition. He says, just go sit with the rest of the band members. You're you're in. So we already had the cop and the GI and the construction worker and the cowboy and the Native American. Mm-hmm. Who else is left? The Leatherman. It's just the Leatherman. So yeah. that's that's all we get out of this entire audition process is the Leatherman. Well, I mean, we get both the GI and the Leatherman. I guess that's true. Because, yeah, he did come to this right. building. Someone bursts into the audition room and s- just sings the word body over and over again while lifting dumbbells and stripping slowly. Body, body, wanna feel my body, 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 wanna touch my body, body. Body. And everyone seems very amused by this. This song is just as good as any of the rest of the songs. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and he just made it up. Everyone's very amused until Ron's parents burst in demanding to know what the hell is going on. Ron's mother refers to them as village people. And for some reason, everyone just falls in love with the name immediately. Oh, that's great, village people. Oh my God, how do we not think of that? Glenn Hughes bursts in and he says that he's a toll collector and he's here for an extension on his income tax, but he's in a full leather outfit. And Ron's mom says, do all toll collectors look like that? And he says, only the hot ones. <laughs> but uh, he's hilarious. Glenn finds out that they're auditioning for a singing group. And he immediately climbs on top of a piano that Ron's father just said Cole Porter played once. And he sings Danny Boy on top of it. Oh, Danny Boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. From Glen to Glen and down the mountainside. Uh, Ron's father is not very supportive of this whole audition process, but uh, her mother says that she will smooth things over. 
Ron has essentially quit her job to represent the band full-time, even though there's not even a band yet, and they have no deal signed. A flame juggler walks in and says, I'm James and flames my games. And he just starts throwing flaming things around until he sets off the emergency sprinkler system. And everyone's just laughing at a whole library of legal books being destroyed. Yeah. Oh, my God. I was so upset by this. I was like, this whole office is ruined. Everything in here is very expensive historical items and documents. And they're all destroyed. They really shouldn't have even had a water sprinkler system. It should have been chemical. They all suffocate from the halon. That would be much better. The next day, the band is already getting nervous because they all, for some reason, quit their jobs. Uh, Ron leads everyone to a free recording space, and it turns out it's a YMCA. So we get a montage to the first Village People song I recognized so far. Young man, there's no need to feel down. I said, young man, pick yourself off the ground. I said, young man, cause you're in a new town. There's no need to be unhappy. Included are lots of shots of Samantha jogging in a macho woman shirt uh, and later just completely topless in a pool with many other members of the band. Uh, We have a crowd of naked men in showers. Reminder here that Gorp, Galaxina, and Up the Academy were rated R for swearing and this PG movie had 12 full-on dicks in it. Uh, You counted? Yes. I I didn't even notice any of them. There were a lot of dicks in it. And I listened to other podcasts review this movie to see, like, is this, like, different in different cuts of the movie? And in every version of this review, the girl was the one who didn't notice the dicks for some reason. <laughs> but it was very strange. Suddenly, there's lots of people doing gymnastics. The edits are not lining up to the music. So I don't even know if, like, if they had the song decided on when they cut this scene or if they just edited a montage and then just put the song on top of it after they finished it. It's also like a seven minute version of the song. <laughs> yeah. And it, it almost like every song... song gets played in its entirety. Yeah. And pretty much. And my niece was just like, what are you watching? How long does this version of the song go yeah. for? Was she watching <laughs> this with you? No, she, but I, I was watching it in the, in the computer room and she, her room's across the hallway and she just like, she just heard the song going on and on and on. And of course she comes in and it's like that weird. Just a bunch of dicks. <laughs> well, it, it, no, it's even, it's, it's, it wasn't even like a scene of actors. It was like, like. Di- They're just doing gymnastics. You know, it was a bunch of the muscle guys just superimposed over each other, like just slowly rotating. And she goes like, well, this what is, is what I do with my spare time. <laughs> Go to your room. I don't know. I just explain myself to you. <laughs> It's art. (laughs) You wouldn't understand. At their official studio recording session, Lulu is in charge of wardrobe and choreographing. But why? (laughs) They're they're recording it. They don't need to dance. They don't need to be dressed up. The same thing happens in stunt rock, though. They're recording an album, and they they're doing magic tricks. They do like the full (laughs) light show, and they're all in costume. That's true. Performing all crazy in the recording booth too. Yeah. Yeah. Mm That's funny. But immediately when they start the song Liberation, the choreography is wrong. They're having mic problems and people are crashing into each other. Steve's 
Steve is watching all of this and he's very disappointed. Even though the song is fine, like the song that they've written is fine and they're performing it fine, it's all technical issues. He just walks away like he's super disappointed in what they've done. Samantha follows him out of the recording studio and he, very quietly, he turns a corner and under his breath, barely audibly, he says something that completely changes the whole meaning of the scene. He says, did it again, got myself a new group and cheap. Did it again. So he's really happy with what he saw. Mm-hmm. But I missed that on I my first I, watch. I think I missed that on both watches. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I caught it. I was like, oh, okay. So he's... He's pretending to hate this. But it's like, why would they have them crashing into each other and the mics are all messed up and to show how much he loves the song that he just heard? But just also a, to a what choice. end? Well, because he's going to like... He wants to down. underbid. Because she's going to be desperate now to get him to sign. He's like, what, what do we have to do? It's like, I'll sign them for this much. Yeah, and he offers like a ridiculous lowball bid. And she's not buying it because she's she has a lot of faith in the band and she knows that this is a BS offer. Samantha and Alicia join Jack and Ron at a table outside. They basically just turn down this offer. They're still recording the demo, but they turn down this offer and... For some reason, Jack and Ron are sitting just laughing hysterically at this table outside. And it turns out that they ran into Benny Murray, that guy from Saddle Tramps. Apparently he sold it, and now he's running a different club, and it needs live performances. So they're not looking for DJs anymore. They're looking for a band, and they happen to be a band, so that's great. But they say they'll need some startup funds. So Samantha says... I know exactly where we can get some startup funds. And she calls up Sydney and says, hey, I want to lock in that mad milk money. (laughs) Um, But she also somehow talks Sydney into including the entire band in the commercial with her. And again, into another five to seven minute commercial. Yes. For milk. Uh, Yep. Samantha is the mother in the commercial and she gives glasses of milk to six children around a breakfast table. The gist being that they will grow up big and strong and potentially gay if they drink their milk. (laughs) This kicks off a music video for a song called The Milkshake. Unclear whether this is all in the four minute commercial. Do the shake, do the shake, do the shake, do the shake. The milkshake, the milkshake, do the shake. When they come home, when they come home, all right. They want something that's cold to drink, cold to drink. But it's by far my favorite song in the entire movie. <laughs> Was this an actual song outside of this movie? Yes, it was. Oh, God. This uh, is such, like, it's all of these really weird storylines that you're having to smush together. You're like, all right, our main character is going to be named Samantha because we have a song called Samantha. And then for yeah. some reason, she's going to advertise milk because we have a song called Milkshake. Yeah. <laughs> and we have to go to the YMCA. Yep. And uh, they couldn't think of something to do for Macho Man. They couldn't get Randy Savage to come in and do a cameo. Mm-hmm. So they were like, never mind. Yeah, I don't know if this is like a 30-second commercial and we're just going into like a four-minute dream sequence of this milkshake song. Well, it's the extended edition that you watch on the internet. Yeah, this is on the DVD of that milk (laughs) commercial that you bought. (laughs) They even do a 45-second encore. Like there's literally a point in this commercial for milk where you're like, wow, that was a really long song. And they come out and they're like, one more time. (laughs) It's like, why are you doing this? But uh, I don't know who's paying for this commercial i imagine that this is like a super bowl commercial and they paid like 18 million dollars to air this four and a half minute milk commercial but uh ron is apparently furious with samantha afterwards for showing so much of herself in the video because she's dressed very she's scantily clad uh surprisingly the client is not totally in love with this ad either (laughs) (laughs) 
Ron's mom says that she recently hosted a party for 3,000 people because that's just a hobby of hers, is hosting massive parties and they always need bands to play. And she's like, oh, that reminds me. I'm supposed to plan a huge party at the Galleria in San Francisco. Maybe you guys could be the band for that party. So now we've abandoned that he was going to get famous through playing music at clubs. We've abandoned that they're going to sell this song to a a record company. We've abandoned that they're going to go work at Benny Murray's new club, mm-hmm. and we're going to this new goal of just performing at a party that was like Deus Ex Machina, like we could have done this from the start and nobody cares. They go to San Francisco. Samantha calls Steve and says, we want to meet you on the way to San Francisco. We're going to talk. We're going to be real about this, and we're going to set up a, a decent contract. You're going to give me a real offer. And Ron overhears the call and lectures her for making a date right in front of her because she's like, how dare you call your ex-boyfriend right here and try and ask him out when I'm right here. And she's like, well, that's not what I was doing. But if that's the way you feel, maybe we should be seeing each other on a purely business level. So on Steve's private plane, Steve is the the record producer boyfriend, which is actually beautifully furnished and painted. I, I really liked the color that they did here. And the furniture was pretty cool. I'm sure this is actually like the village people plane. You think but the village people had a plane of their own? They were huge at the time. I, I bet they had a plane. He tells the pilots to pull away as soon as Samantha is on board because his plane has to like trap her on the plane and win her back while they're flying to San Francisco. But instead of Samantha, Jack and his mother get on the plane. She insists that everyone buckle their seatbelts. So she's like pulling up seatbelts out of the couch to like buckle everybody down so they can negotiate the contract. Mom says that she worked with David Merrick a prolific Tony Award-winning theatrical producer who, by sheer coincidence, happened to produce Don Siegel's Rough Cut, released the same weekend as this film. And she says that she knows a thing or two about contracts. The show in San Francisco introduces the Ritchie family, another group whose songs were possibly also written by Jack, because in real life, the Ritchie family songs were written by Jack Morelli. So, I mean, they don't show him writing music for any other groups, but he wrote these songs too. Lulu wants to know where Samantha and the costumes are because both are late. We never really get a good answer to this question. Ron shows up with the costumes and Lulu says, where's Samantha? And she says, that Steve could have taken her to Acapulco by now. And, and Ron is like, Acapulco? What are, you, what are you talking about? Glenn Hughes bangs his head against a wall repeating Leatherman don't get nervous because he's worried about the show. Ron's mother shows up and introduces two women from her committee, Mrs. Williams and Mrs. Slatkin. And Sydney shows up and claims to be their new PR rep. She, like, quit her job representing models and is now just a PR rep for this band. She has her fingers crossed for an interview with Claudia Walters for 2060 or whatever that show's called, which is obviously a Barbara Walters and 2020 joke. Jack and his mother show up with signed contracts for Marrakesh Records. They got the record contract, even though they played... 12 seconds of one song and screwed it up but i guess his mom's a good uh, a good negotiator claudia walters does show up and on the way in they make a point to show that he's ignoring steve because he wants to talk to the people involved with the creation of the group so she talks to the guy who wrote the music some of the members of the band but weirdly though she circles back around to flirt with steve and they leave together and we never see this character again so it's like i don't understand like I thought the whole joke of it was that he thought he was important and she only wanted to hear from the band and then she leaves without the band. Samantha finally shows up. No idea where she's been. We don't explain why she's here so late or 
what method of travel she settled on when she didn't get on the plane. Ron gets mad at Samantha for doing something that Lulu completely guessed at, but there there was no evidence that she actually went to Acapulco. That's just something that Lulu said. And then Ron apologizes and proposes to her, and they kiss. So apparently they're going to get married now. The band and Jack all join hands in a circle, and Jack says, We're a group. Mostly to himself. The cowboy backs through saloon doors onto the stage at the party, and he fires his guns in the air. The Native American does a presumably traditional dance onto the stage. The cop idles out on a motorcycle. The leatherman rolls out on a chopper. The GI drives a full-on Humvee out onto the stage. And the construction worker is for some reason driving a tractor, like a farming tractor, instead of a bulldozer (laughs) or something. All the vehicles vaporize anyway, so it might as well have been a tractor. Who cares? They all close out on a song called Can't Stop the Music, which is just as bad as everything so far, except for YMCA, Liberation, and Milkshake. We get a montage over the credits of earlier scenes from the film in the order they appeared, including additional cameos from Samantha's boobs and the dozen dogs. And that's uh, that's the end of our film. Yeah. All right. That's a movie, apparently. It seems like that is a movie, technically. And I thought we weren't doing concert movies. This isn't a concert movie. It's got a There's story. There's so much story to it. <laughs> Every scene is a new story. <laughs> Every scene is a new musical story. To be fair, the second time that I watched it, I just fast-forwarded all the songs. Mm. So It took about eight minutes to watch it. But yeah, it's a rough watch. Oh, and I did want to recommend, there's a podcast called Scream Queens, Queens with a Z at the end. Look into their review of Can't Stop the Music because the host makes a very convincing argument that... The protesters should have been protesting this movie (laughs) and that it actually probably did more damage in the long run than cruising did. But I actually thought it was a pretty fascinating point and he makes it very well. The director here was Nancy Walker. She played Ida Morgenstern on Mary Tyler Moore and Rhoda. The writer was Bronte Woodard who wrote basically just Grease and This and died less than two months after this film was released. Writer Alan Carr adapted the Grease stage musical into the first film and produced both of them. I didn't realize it was a stage musical first and then the movie Grease, but apparently that's the case. Yeah, Alan Carr also produced uh, a movie that I really love, and I was like, oh. Oh, really? All right, well, there it is. He was one of the producers of uh, Cloak and Dagger. Oh, is that true? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I missed that. That's funny. Valerie Perrine was Samantha here. She played Eve Teskmacher in Superman. Mitch Teskmacher! Lex Luthor's girlfriend. Yeah. Or assistant. Is she a girlfriend or... Um, I think that there is a love interest, but it's... She's mostly there to do his bidding. Yes. Yeah. She is a henchwoman. Yeah. To Ned Beatty's uh, henchmen. Right. Uh, Valerie Perrine played Lenny Bruce's wife, Honey, in the biopic starring Dustin Hoffman. Caitlyn Jenner was Ron White here. Caitlyn is a retired Olympic gold medal winning decathlete. Co-star with ex-wife Chris Jenner of keeping up with the kardashians which is currently in its 17th season jesus did not realize it was still going that long it's one of the longest running cable tv programs ever i have watched exactly zero episodes of that other than playing herself caitlin did not appear in film again until jack and jill in 2014 so not a great track record well a great 
track record, but not a great <laughs> acting track record. Steve Gutenberg was Jack Morrell. He's in Three Men and a Baby, Cocoon, Short Circuit, Police Academy. Originally made famous by the Stonecutters. Uh, <laughs> Paul Sand. Paul Sand played Steve Waits, the record producer. He was Coach Finstock in Teen Wolf 2. <laughs> we talk about Coach Finstock a lot on here because we just had Paul Sand in uh, Holy Moses. He was the angel with detachable wings. He also plays Greenberg in The Hot Rock, which is a fun movie. Tammy Grimes was Sidney Channing. She played Molly Grew in The Last Unicorn. Yeah. That's a voice acting role, obviously. She is a two-time Tony Award winner. One was for originating the role of Molly Brown in The Unsinkable Molly Brown. And her first husband, Christopher Plummer, and their daughter, Amanda Plummer, are both also Tony Award winners. I didn't realize mm-hmm. that Christopher Plummer and Amanda Plummer were related <laughs> until I, I read that bit of trivia. I did not know that and, either. And I didn't realize that Amanda Plummer had won a Tony. Yeah, but apparently she did. Uh, June Havoc was Helen Morrell. That's Jack's mom. She was Elaine Wales in A Gentleman's Agreement. She has a soundtrack credit in Inglorious Bastards for the French version of a song she sang called Man with a Big Sombrero. The man with the big sombrero is strictly on the beam. And every fair muchacha there is crazy after him for when it rains. She's a very famous Broadway performer and film actress and the younger sister of Louise Havoc, who became Gypsy Rose Lee, whose memoirs were adapted into the 1959 stage musical Gypsy. So she is the inspiration for the character Baby June in the musical Gypsy, June Havoc. Uh, also, just the greatest last name ever. Yes, like Havoc, Havoc is awesome. And both of her autobiographies benefited from that. Yeah. I also have a, another credit for her, uh, an Outer Limits episode that she was in with Eddie Albert called okay. The Cry of Silence, which is about a couple who get lost and are attacked by killer tumbleweeds and take refuge. Oh my God, in, I've seen that. I remember that yeah. one. <laughs> they take refuge in a crazy farmer's house. <laughs> Did you ever see... Was it called Apollo 18 or where it was like the moon rocks? It turned out they were like aliens. Oh, no. It reminds me of that, where it's just like something that could not possibly hurt oh, you at all. Oh, recently. This yeah, is a fairly a more, recent a more movie. Recent yeah, yeah. Movie. I, I know of it. Yeah, that's great, though. Outer Limits is an underrated show. I think it gets foreshadowed by all the Twilight Zone stuff. Yeah. Barbara Rush was Norma White. She played Margaret Fremantle in The Young Lions. Ellen Fields in It Came From Outer Space. So a couple of old school actresses here. Altavis Davis played Alicia Edwards. That's the woman who replaced Felicia Rashad in the film. She was the third wife of Sammy Davis Jr. Hmm. Marilyn Sokol played Lulu Brecht. She was Stella in Foul Play, Doris in Crocodile Dundee 2, and we just had her as Alice Squibb in The Last Married Couple in America. She was one of the neighbors who were getting divorced. Jack Weston played Benny Murray here. He plays Max Kellerman in Dirty Dancing. He's Marty Freed in Ishtar, which is one of my favorites. Speaking of when we were talking about Twilight Zone overshadowing our outer limits, I immediately recognized him from a Twilight Zone episode. Oh, really? I was like, oh my God, that's the guy, one of the guys from the Monsters on Maple Street, because that's one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes. That's funny. He's one of the guys who really, really wants to kill the kid and inadvertently shoots one of the people who they see approaching in the dark. It's a great episode of the Twilight Zone. It's got Claude <laughs> Akins, and uh, it's a good one. He also plays Oscar Baldwin in Short Circuit 2. So that's a fun character. Dick Patterson played the record store manager. He was the, he was a teacher in both of the Grease movies. Two different teachers, though. <laughs> he was uh, Mr. Rudy and Mr. Spears in each of the movies. 
Portia Nelson played the receptionist in the law office. She plays Sarah Doolittle in the Dr. Doolittle, the original Dr. Doolittle movie. And she played Sister Bertha in The Sound of Music. Selma Archard played Mrs. Williams. Mrs. Williams is one of the two women that gets brought into the green room before their show at the end of the film from Mrs. White's committee. She played Mrs. Claus in Scrooged. So this was a mm. confusing credit for me. It took me a while to figure it out. Yeah, from the, from the Lee Majors. That's what I thought. I thought it was that Mrs. Claus. Mm-hmm. Um, but the picture on IMDb is of her standing on a desk at the Christmas party huh. when they're going through the Christmas party that Frank wasn't taking part in in the in the flashback with the ghost of christmas past but it's not the woman who's handing out pictures of her butt from the no, copier no, no, but it's a different girl who's also wearing a santa claus outfit but she's credited as mrs claus apparently interesting but she's just standing on a desk drinking and i'm pretty sure the picture in the imdb thing is is accurately her she also plays a hostage in die hard and a cop in lethal weapon 3 and she is the wife of army archard who we just had play himself in Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood. He was a famous variety columnist and probably got her these weird little cameo appearances in movies every once in a while. It's a rough watch. I think there's enough weirdness and fun that it doesn't it doesn't drag. It's just there's not much here to latch on to. And the writing is pretty bad, I would say. It doesn't really even feel written. It feels yeah. like somebody whiteboarded a movie like uh what can we put in this movie how about we vaguely connect you know this song to this song with this concept and and then everybody just sort of ad-libbed when they got to set yeah i think that's kind of how this came together i don't really have too much else to say about this one um i think i'll go ahead and give you my upper down right now and that's a down for me that's yeah that's that's a definite down yeah it's a downer um I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry village people your music is good but this movie is not is it though i think, I, I think some of their music today. is good i i like ymca and in the navy and macho man and i like the milkshake i like the muppet version of in the navy sure <laughs> why not uh jess where's this going letterboxd uh so this goes i'm gonna put it just below cereal but above Baltimore Bullet, which is really pretty low on the list. Let's see, that's uh, ninth from the, the from the bottom. Okay. Uh, I don't. Yeah, mine mine's pretty low. It's not that low, but um, I'm gonna put this. I think I'm just gonna put this just above Stunt Rock, and that's that just, sounds really fair, actually. And uh, just below Effects. You know, just I, I just want to point out that it is above Stunt Rock and below Effects for me. Mm. Right. It's just those movies are lower on my list than yours. Uh, cause Siri, yeah, because Serial is <laughs> second from the bottom for me. Uh. I think uh, I am actually also putting it directly above Stunt Rock, which is way below Effects for me because Effects is much higher on my list than on your guys's. It goes above Stunt Rock and just below Private Eyes. But I think that's about everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Hearse, which IMDb describes like so. A girl is haunted by a phantom hearse 
which she believes is connected to her departed aunt, a witch with a bad reputation in town. That's all kinds of wrong. We leave you now with a trailer for The Hearse. The barrier between life and death is no greater than the thickness of a door. And now, the door is open. Crown International Pictures presents The Hearse. Welcome to Blackford. You plan on staying very long? Well, I'm not exactly sure yet. Maybe for the summer. A beautiful woman trying to escape her past. When my marriage ended, I nearly cracked up. Becomes trapped in a past far more terrible than her own. I know what your aunt did here. She worshipped the devil. He believes we can live forever, even beyond death. What diabolical forces are manipulating her life? I am possessed. I am possessed. That uh, blanket. Oh, it belonged to my aunt. I wouldn't show it to too many people if I were you. It's the devil's sign. Why is she being pursued by a phantom on wheels? The hearse that carried your aunt's body crashed. It exploded into flames. Stranger than that, there was no sign of the driver or your aunt's coffin. What horrifying destiny will be fulfilled when at last she encounters the hearse? What do you want? An ancient house. It's haunted. And you're a ghost. A classic car. It's still roaming the old county road in search of victims. You're not gonna get me! You're not! You're not! A terrifying confrontation with evil. Can't I serve a destiny? Trish Vanderveer. Joseph Cotton. Anybody there? The hearse. A classic experience in fright. <laughs> <laughs>